Get out your yoga mat or throw out your yoga mat because it's time for Sermons from the Mat. Irreverent, honest, inspiring stories from yours truly, Samantha Wild. Just your ordinary book writing, sermon preaching, yoga teaching, spiritual mentoring, mother of five children. Now, if I can only remember what I want to say, this is going to be really good. Welcome back to the podcast. I've got a really good story for you today. It's called, If it's sex in the woods and not your dorm room, will it still count against you? So by the time I arrived at Kripalu for my yoga teacher training, this is more than 20 years ago, the community, once an ashram with a guru-disciple sex scandal, had rearranged itself and made a tremendous comeback, claiming a new identity as a health center for the modern age. The days of sleeping with your guru, as well as the days of smashing your guru's altar to smithereens out of the rage of betrayal, and that's a fact, had long passed. In fact, the only remains of that ashrami lifestyle had been relegated to one room on the second floor. Well, it wasn't exactly a room, more like an annex off of a room. Now that area is a storage space, if that gives you any sense of the relative importance of the guru to the place. But when I arrived there again several decades ago, the closet area housed some photographs of Swami Kripalu and served, for lack of a better word, as a simple chapel, a tiny bit of homage to the great man who inspired the name and the philosophy behind Kripalu Center. Now, Swami Kripalu was not responsible for the breach of conduct, and he wasn't involved in the sexual abuse. That was one of his disciples. So just to make it absolutely clear, those are two different people. When I got there, I felt pretty much like a half-naked Swami myself, and that wasn't just because I refused to wear anything but towels, but also because I felt different from everybody else. It struck me almost immediately like one of these didn't look like the others, and that one was me. When I looked around, all the people were so yoga-y. Somehow a category that defied classification had bred both a look and an attitude. It occurred to me that whatever yoga represented it wasn't me. And then it occurred to me that I didn't know what yoga represented. And then it occurred to me that possibly no one else did either. It reminded me that whole feeling inside of me of not belonging of the time I told my spiritual mentor about my desire to go to Yasodhara Ashram, which is in beautiful British Columbia. I was 20 years old. I had taken exactly two yoga classes and I had no desire to take any more. Yet I urgently wished to go live at what was essentially a yoga school or a monastery. Now keep in mind, I had been practicing yoga since I was nine years old, but just not in classes because back in that time, there weren't a lot of them and it's just not how we did it. So when I explained my interest in this ashram to my mentor, I said to her, I don't wanna go for the yoga. I'm not really into yoga. That's not my thing. I just wanna be part of the spiritual community. So how could I simultaneously practice so much yoga and not be into yoga? That's like a perfect example, not only the state of my mind, but also the state of American yoga at that time. Sure, I didn't say I did yoga back then because I had no idea what yoga was. But even after my new best friend complimented me on my forward bend, this happened to me one day in a class when I got up afterwards from the whole hour and the guy behind me who had been literally three inches behind my mat said you have a really nice forward bend even after i was that person in those classes with all those people i still didn't feel like i belonged to the club i could touch my toes 
I could go to classes with 50 people and celebrity teachers, but I still didn't feel like I belonged to the club. And I like to say that only occurred out of some kind of deep-seated issues with me. There might be some truth to that. Or that I somehow got it wrong and there wasn't a yoga club. But there was a yoga club. Just as a common language exists among practitioners of different schools of yoga, just as a yoga dress code, unspoken, of course, permeates the yoga scene, something unchallenged and nearly ineffable lingered around me during my time at Kripalu. Even while I actually did the real yoga, fancy stuff like getting tangled up in my own limbs and breathing through alternate nostrils and chewing a lot, I felt largely misplaced relative to the folks around me. And so I hope you can understand that this wasn't just a mental problem. This wasn't just Sam's having an insecurity issue. Let me tell you this 100% true tale. Because in this 100% true tale, I think you'll understand why what happened to me there is so important and still relevant all these decades later. Every day, for the 30 days I spent in the yoga teacher training program, the entire group of us spent an hour and a half every day moving through a set series of postures. This occurred at the same time each day in the afternoon, and we paced through the poses together in the same order while the teacher led us. As the weeks went on, the teachers in training were assigned the job of assistance and would walk around the room giving gentle encouragements or corrections to those practicing. As had become my custom, I practiced in the back left corner with the relative safety a corner provides. Our group consisted of about 60 people, mostly women, with a smattering of men and one pregnant lady. To these afternoon classes, I wore my typical yoga attire, comfortable clothes, something with a shelf bra on the top and cotton pants I'd scored from the Salvation Army. I didn't practice with more or less ambition than those around me. I practiced with as much heart as I could muster for a sequence I found pretty boring, but certainly I did it with great pleasure for the absolute intensity of joy that comes for me from moving with the breath. Well, during one of these practices, a student teacher came down the long aisle looking this way and that, and she finally landed beside me. It was not often that assistants made it to the back row, so this was good news. This woman stood near me for an unusually long amount of time. Now I was in some pose, I don't remember what it is anymore, maybe a warrior pose, breathing and hanging out, only slightly annoyed that she seemed to have decided to study me. When she said, wow, you can really do yoga. I had no idea. I mean, to look at you, it wouldn't seem like you could. Um, but what just happened? Yeah, she goes on, as if her words were helpful. You're really good, and that totally surprises me. The way you hang out here in the back corner and wear clothes like that, I had no idea. Holy smoke. Would the compliments never cease from this lady? Finally, she smiled and walked away. Well, as you can imagine, that story holds a very special place in my heart, and I so love to share it. I can't tell it without laughing, and it satisfies me, you know, in a really deep way. It's so satisfying because it's so true, and rarely do we get confronted with a blazing torch of honest judgment in the way I encountered it. After all, the woman didn't do anything but voice some ideas I'd had suspicions others may have entertained about me. 
Who knew that the lack of name brand yoga clothing could have such a penetrating effect on people? Why, it seemed that this woman had been blinded by some kind of yoga standard to which I failed to live up. But tell me, how had that standard been created? How did it so quickly take root when yoga was still so young in America? And why the heck did she think she could say it? I've spent the past many decades perfecting the ability of not seeing my students while they practice. If possible, I try never to see them. Sometimes I don't even recognize them if we meet outside of the studio. I never know what anybody wears. I probably couldn't tell you their hair color or eye color or height, despite having certain students practice with me for upwards of nearly two decades. I don't ever want to see with my eyes when I teach, because for me, that's not teaching, that's seeing. What do we teach with? The heart, of course. So let me back up and paint the bigger picture. Kripalu and I have been together uh, singing one another for a month at this point, right? I'm there doing my teacher training. I live in a dorm room with 30 other people. And that's totally wonderful because I'm super commune material, as some of you know. And also, you know, the wafting nighttime gas emissions from the meat eaters who were forced on a vegetarian diet back then. That, me on the top bunk, wow, it was really an experience to remember. But I enjoyed it. I really deeply enjoyed it. And every day I'd rise at 5.45 for my 6 o'clock yoga class. And that's, you know, a little bit earlier than I would normally get up. At breakfast, uh, after breakfast, I'd attend another morning class and I'd learn anatomy, the history of Kripalu Yoga, Pranayama, Asana, how to give assists, and other methodological stuff. And then lunch would follow, followed by that afternoon set series of postures I mentioned before. Somewhere in there was the Kripalu tradition of a talking circle, which I came to truly dislike and would later, on dozens of visits back to the center, wish I could go to. Now that's another story right there. But let's move on with this one. So our entire group of 60 took an oath of celibacy for the length of the training. And that didn't bother me. Uh, The only person I wanted to have sex with at that time was ignoring me anyway. It was the overt collapsing of the natural sexual identity that troubled me, and it caused trouble. You know, it's one thing to say, hey, we're all sexual people. Sex is fun. For the next 30 days, as a cool experiment, don't have any. But that doesn't mean that sex can't be holy or doesn't involve spirituality, because we all know that ain't so. It's another thing to say, at least implicitly, no sex for 30 days, Sex messes with your pure yoga energies. It could be bad for you, and we don't like it. Here's what's wrong with that second statement. As far as I could understand, it was just that form of thinking that had caused the trouble within the original community. Remember, this is a place that had a sex scandal with their guru. Does a greater aphrodisiac exist than a taboo begging breaking Don't believe me? Try it. I now officially declare it wrong, bad, sinful, and naughty to have sex on the floor. Wait two weeks and write me an email and I bet everybody enjoys some sex on the floor. Well, minus the rug burns. Okay, anyway, it was this exact attitude that had given a reputation to Kripalu. While others either kept quiet or kept their commandments in my group of 60, I, no, I did not break my celibacy, But I did talk a lot about passion and chocolate and Gandhi. Yes, it was really talking about Gandhi that got me into trouble. 
It happened during an afternoon intensive that included some demonstration of poses and conversations around yoga ethics. When Gandhi's name came up, the group swelled with admiration and praise. Well, who doesn't love the man who said you must be the change you wish to see in the world? And actually took his own advice and lived it. I consider Gandhi remarkable, incredible, and far beyond me, but not beyond reproach. Which is why I brought up the wee issue of his sleeping with young girls, family members actually, beside him in order to test his commitment to celibacy. So he would have them sleep in the same bed with him so that he could practice his celibacy commitment. So this is a known fact. And it is also said that he changed this habit after some time and a certain amount of disdain from the outside looking in, that this was not really such a good thing to be doing. So when I inserted this detail into the Gandhi love session, nobody believed me. They literally could not believe that a man as great as Gandhi could have acted so carelessly. And as little girls who are subject to the intrusive sexuality of older male relatives know all too well, so cruelly. Not to put too fine a point on it, but this was my whole problem with the general atmosphere of celibacy as a, quote, holy practice. Now, I love a perfectly squeaky clean window as well as the next person, but as soon as you clean your window, dust kicks up. If you really want a window that shines without flaws, you have to clean it several times a day. In other words, I don't know of many squeaky clean, flawless individuals. Granted, Gandhi could have engaged a more humble flaw, like frequent indulgence in ice cream. Most of us don't need to sleep next to prepubescent members of the opposite sex to make sure we can live without arousing temptation. Why did a great man like Gandhi do it? Well, let a Freudian take that issue. What I care about is that we don't forget, even for a second, our brokenness. Our light shines through it for sure, but it shines through it, not outside of it. After this conversation, I got a reputation for being disruptive and dissident. I started counting down the days until the training ended, Xing each one off of my calendar like a prison inmate. As often happens in such situations, I befriended the other outcasts of the program. Because really, I had gotten this reputation, and it wasn't a good one. We had a wonderful trans woman mid-transition with us. I watched her prepare the dildo she used to gradually widen and stretch her new vaginal cavity to prepare it. Uh, I didn't, I watched her prepare them, I should say, not use them. So that was pretty amazing. I learned a lot. We also had a woman who liked to wear her sexuality on the outside, and by that I mean she wore see-through clothing. She also openly protested the no sex commandment. Whether anyone actually caught her doing the deed, I don't remember. What I do remember is at the end of our 30-day stint, she was not granted her certificate, primarily because of the alluring clothing that she wore. Before the end of the program, the teachers and leaders called her in for a conference and told her due to her revealing and inappropriate clothing, they couldn't endorse her for her candidacy as a teacher. And they offered her a remedial path instead, something like go home and do these things and write these essays and then we'll consider giving you a teacher's certificate. Well, that obviously didn't make my friend happy and it didn't make her change her outfit. In that outfit that they were so upset about, you could see the outline of her thighs and probably also her breasts. So her clothing didn't bother me, so I didn't give it that much attention. I was just glad that I never found myself in a clothing emergency with only her to rely on 
guess I wouldn't have been wearing the same thing. So we didn't bond over a shared fashion sense, but we did connect over a similar feeling of distaste for the way of things around us relative to the big, bad S word. S-E-X. So I'd certainly had enough years of sleeping with a variety of people behind me to understand that sex done in the right way can as surely lead Godward as any other experience. It was not for me, God is here, pointing to the field of flowers, God is here, pointing to the church, God is here, pointing to the homeless, and God is not here, pointing to the coitus. In fact, it seemed perfectly possible to me that the sensual body could speed more quickly towards enlightenment if handled in the proper way. Instead of feeling that encompassing embrace of the full rainbow of human experience, during my training, I felt the negative effects of repression of an organic, native, vital, and holy force, sexual vitality, manifesting in a variety of ways. So here is the excellent example of what I mean. One of the women in my dorm room was adorable. She was pretty and interesting and fun and playful, and she was single. One of the men in the program was great, interesting, sweet, thoughtful, and married. What could be a more fertile growing ground for infidelity to arise than during a celibate yoga teacher training? I didn't know it at the time, only finding out after my graduation from the program, but my sweet friend and this sweet guy, as the 30 days wound down towards completion, wandered off to the woods and screwed, or made love, or both. I wasn't there to assess what it was, nor was I there to judge when I talked to my friend over the phone a week post-graduation, and she told me everything confessing all her feelings for this married father. It was hard, I admit, to be happy for her. Was this yoga too? Was it karma? Was it the result of past actions? Was it more enlightened of them to go with their feelings rather than repress them? Did they make the loving choice? Did all the practice and conversation and soulful consideration of the ethics of yoga lead them? to that little horny cove in the woods? Truly, it seemed to me that if the practice demanded celibacy, it left us ill-equipped to fulfill it. It might serve us to, quote, let go of certain things, sex included, but for everything we release, we need a replacement. Have you ever known anyone who decided to stop saying negative things to themselves? That's a great practice, of course, but then what? Either you replace those thoughts with positive statements or you keep saying negative things to yourself. A vacuum simply doesn't exist. There is no no sex place for the vast majority of people, nor is it a part of ourselves easily boxed up and put on a shelf. If it must be set aside, what replaces it? Where does the energy get directed? What supports are in place to assist people in handling the energy and emotion that arises? Here's an interesting question to ask. Would those two people have had an affair if celibacy had not been required? Maybe, but I doubt it would have happened if we'd gotten active instruction about sexuality. We need a real sexual education, not a conversation about the birds and the bees. And yoga is the perfect place for it, as yoga engages the body, all the senses, the sensuality of movement, and taps into our energy, or prana body. Sex is complicated and messy. You know, I get that. And when things are complicated and messy, we imagine if we simply put them aside, then we won't have complications and mess. But it isn't true. And by that, I mean it's never true, not ever. 
The reality is that a pink elephant in the room never becomes invisible. Our sexual selves need airtime, resources, inspiration, compassion, and education. You know, it broke my heart a little bit what happened with my friend and this man, mostly because he had children and a wife, and that kind of betrayal never sits so well with me, a child for whom infidelity played on the large screen between my parents. But I didn't think less of either of them. Because they weren't caught in the act, they, unlike my more provocatively dressed friend, went home with their teacher's certifications. So who's the worthy teacher? Anytime we separate ourselves from an essential aspect of our nature, we get confused. It makes me think of a yoga teacher I went to once, and, and many teachers do this, who had the class turn around for shavasana so that our feet would not face the altar. This is because the altar is a holy place and feet are deemed unholy, on account of being so dirty, particularly in cultures where sandals or bare feet are worn and where there's more dust and dirt than most American towns. But are the feet really not holy? What person decided which body parts merit holiness? My goodness, feet do so much. They carry us where we need to go. They hold us up. They keep us grounded. They root us in. What we need from yoga and from spirituality in whatever expression is not another place of separation and division. What we need are skillful practices to remember and reignite unity, unity with one another and unity within ourselves. Sex can be anything, ecstasy, violence, comfort, addiction. And as is the way with forms that can express inequality, we need that support and education to learn how to use the energy properly. So I'll say again, what better place to learn than in yoga? A few years back, the first scandal erupted for the Duggar clan, which is now we've had a second eruption, and the oldest of the Duggars, the famous family with all those children, was found to have a, a porn, pedophilic porn. Well, that family practiced purity, saving sex for marriage for their children, no kissing, only hand-holding, and they were strongly, strongly religious. And now, of course, we know that the oldest, and maybe others, we don't know, has a sexual addiction. So in a culture filled with infidelity and child sexual abuse, there arrived in their scandal an incredible opportunity. The Duggars have a far-reaching fan base, a massive, massive place of influence. As an act of redemption, this very public family could have used their platform to educate on the dangers of sexual repression, on the shadow side of purity practices, and in that way they could have saved countless victims, but they didn't do that. When these scandals arise, we always approach them as anomalies rather than the air that we breathe. Sadly, sexual misconduct infects every area from churches to born-again Christian families to yoga. What we have then is a change in and through yoga to allow the good of sex full expression, the good of the body full delight, and the wisdom of the yoga practices to show forth a healing, redemptive way to use our sexuality. In and of itself, sexuality is neutral. It can be used for the good, it can be used for the bad. I recently designed a yoga class with a local sex therapist called Yoga for Better Sex. After that, I designed a workshop called Yoga for Your Best Sex, and I advertised that workshop on my Facebook page. The advertisement had a description of the workshop and a picture of me. And I should say I was fully clothed and definitely not having sex. 
but my Facebook ad campaign was halted midway for violating Facebook's rules, and I was prevented from further advertising on account of my, quote, sexual content. Okay, tell me, what is the danger of a knife? In the hand of a chef, it's a tool that brings us delicious food. In the hand of a sociopath, it's an implement of murder. I'll ask you again, what is a knife? We must turn our feet towards the altar. The old ways don't work. We need the new ways. And the new ways say the body is holy. Every part, no part left out. Aren't we all a little closer to enlightenment now? Oh, well, something like that. I'm delighted I got to spend this time with you, so let's stay connected. Don't forget to find me at thesamanthawild.com. You can find me on Instagram at thesamanthawild, on Facebook at author Samantha Wild, and probably you could find me a lot in my backyard hanging out with the kids and the goats. So let's stay in touch. And wasn't it wonderful that we did all this and didn't have to get out of our pajamas? <laughs> <laughs>